Good evening. The opinions and statements voiced by our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of this network. Enjoy the shows. You are listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. as they navigate us through the different categories of the unknown and the unexplained, including ghosts and haunted places, cryptids and monsters, aliens and UFOs, theology and mythology, metaphysics, forbidden archaeology, urban legends and folklore, conspiracies, crimes, and corruption with top analysis from the experts of these disciplines. If it's amazing, unusual, or mysterious. If it's bizarre, creepy, and fantastic. If it's unbelievable, paranormal, or supernatural. It's here on Paraversal Universe. Here are your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer. Hello, everyone. Whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are, welcome to Paraversal Universe, brought to you by the Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society Limited at the Northwoods Paranormal Resource Center here in Rylander, Wisconsin. We're your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer Malley. Paraversal Universe is produced by Kat Hobson, the voice for Fate Magazine Radio, over at WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. We're also heard on WCET 101.7 FM, out of Columbia, South Carolina, High Point Radio at 100.5 FM and 1620 AM out of New York and New Jersey, and the Rift Radio Network family, based out of Lakeside, Virginia. Welcome one and all, and hello to everybody in the chat room. Hello, everybody. We look forward to your questions and comments as always. The archive for the show will be available as well. Show archives from over the years can be found in various places on the web, including our archives like page on Facebook called Paraversal Universe Show Archives. Also check out our guest promo page, Paraversal Universe Radio, for what's upcoming in the near future. And we hope everyone is doing well. As always, um, fall is fast approaching. Fall is my favorite time of the year. Yay, fall. <laughs> Uh, and we have an awesome show today. Uh, we are going to be in Paralogian report mode. But first, as always, let's do our shout-outs. Shout-outs go to those people who share our show banners on a regular basis or recently that we are aware of. We always appreciate it greatly and thank you kindly. So who do we have? 
this week we have Walt Christos, Thoughts of Christos, Katrina Cooper, Rhody Speak, Dennis Koch, Jason Bland, Paranormal Soup, Cindy Liu, Robert Bull, Metaphysical Bounce, Howie Odell from The Orion Effect, Kat Hobson at WVHM, Lawrence DeMiza, Jean Broida, Lisa Reynaga, The Rift, Sudan, Lori Kresslaw, Dr. Chuck Kennedy, Project PSI Institute, Ty Ward, Fate Magazine Radio, Clairvoyance, Chuck Brokus, Paranormal Daily News, DM Ceiling, Julie Wrench, Monster X. All righty. And Trey Hudson. And yes. Thank you, everyone. Welcome to the Paralogian Report, uh, which we will now be doing every other week, starting in September. The Paralogian Report is a paranormal, supernatural, esoteric, and for TN and exo-geopolitical fringe talk radio roundtable with news reports from various alternative outlets all over the world, academic research news, and classic accounts of high strangeness. And for this broadcast, as always, we bring you a panel of individuals who specialize in different areas of the unknown and unexplained to give us a well-rounded analysis of reports we will present here on the show today. And let me introduce you to today's correspondence. And we have psychologist, ufologist, astrologist, and author Jean Breida. Hi, Jean. Hi, everybody, and greetings, Mirthlings. <laughs> Paranormal investigator and owner of WBHM Digital Broadcasting, our producer, Kat Hobson. How are you doing, Kat? I am doing well. How are you? Awesome. Thank you. I hope our audience is, too. We have uh, Anne. We have neuroscientist and hypnotherapist Dr. Chuck Kennedy. PhD from the Project PSI Institute in Chicago. Hi, Doc. Hey, Kev. How you doing? Good. And uh, this week, uh, psychotherapist Tom McGuire and cryptozoologist Don Young cannot join us, uh, but I'm sure we will see them in the future. So, uh, and of course... We also have uh, psychic, remote viewer, and religious demonologist Jennifer Malik. Hello, everybody. And myself. I am a paranormal historian and ufologist. And we are the correspondents for today's broadcast. And our format is the same, as always, for the Paralogian Report. One of our panel members will read a news article we have brought to the roundtable, and we'll go around the panel and share our perspectives concerning the story or topic. That's all there is to it. If anyone in the chat room uh, has an opinion on any of the stories we will present today, leave your thoughts in the comments, and we may read those as well. No guarantees, of course. It depends on the context of the content. But we will take note. So having said that, let's get the ball rolling. And starting off this week will be Dr. Chuck Kennedy. So what do you have for us, Doc? Well, this is an article I wrote for uh, a blog a, a while back, and uh, it's called, Do Spirits Make Us Sick? 
We all know how on a peaceful Sunday afternoon the mood can be ruined by thinking about going back to work on Monday morning and how that boss gives us such a headache. And we think about it, we dwell on it, and then when Monday morning rolls around, we wake up with such a headache and we call in sick. Now, we all know this is known as psychosomatic. It's an idea that started in our brain, but it ends up being a somatic, a physical complaint. And, um, uh, but we also have what, after decades of, of research, what I call psi-somatic. And that's where the spirits around us give us a physical ailment. Over the years, I've had many patients come to me complaining of a physical symptom, and most often they're very vague. And what they didn't realize what their symptom was also their diagnosis. And they would say things like, I don't know what's gotten into me today, or maybe I'm not myself today. And the reality is, no, they are not. And sure enough, they had picked up a spirit attachment, and now they have spirit attachment syndrome. And where the spirit is not a demon, but the spirit is just the spirit itself that gets inside them and makes them sick. But how does this become physical? Well, in some cases, the spirit will carry pain that they had when they were alive. And once they get inside of us, they transfer that pain to us while they're inside of us. In other cases, the spirit uh, inside of us will affect our concentration and affect our thought process to the point where we get a headache. And in some cases, the spirit will cause us such anxiety and discomfort that results in breathing problems or even abdominal pains and digestive issues. And the end result is very often um, the discomfort is psychosomatic. So when you have that difficult to identify pain, just ask yourself, what's gotten into you today? There's 10 basic signs and symptoms of um, spirit attachment syndrome, and all of them are basically sudden onset. Because when I read these things, you're going to say, oh, well, I, I slowly got that over the course of the past year. I've, I've been run down or whatever. But the thing about spirit attachment syndrome, your symptoms have a very rapid onset. You suddenly wake up one day and you feel this way. Uh, even schizophrenics learn to, to hear voices over the course of, of a year, 18 months. But if suddenly you hear voices one morning, it's likely you've got a, a spirit attachment. There's no prodromal effect to spirit attachment syndrome. There's no buildup. You suddenly just have it. So low energy level, and yeah, I know we all have low energy level, but I mean we take this every day, our butt is dragging uh, energy level, and then all of a sudden we can't move. It's a sudden, real, real drain on, on our energy level. Uh, our character shifts or our mood swings, and that can very often, when that's a sudden onset, that's very often a uh, spirit attachment. Uh, we hear these inner voices speaking to us, 
and we've never heard inner voices before. This can be that. We suddenly turn to the abuse of drugs or alcohol. We become very impulsive in our behavior because we're not doing what we think. We do what, what the voice tells us to do. And we have sudden onset memory problems, uh, sudden onset poor concentration, or where we haven't had anxiety or depression before, now suddenly we have anxiety and depression. So these, um, uh, these sudden onset conditions where we have a, uh, the idiopathic physical condition, and that's a physical pain or, or lack of mobility that we didn't have before. And um, the giveaway, the final um, nail in the coffin, so to speak, that confirms the diagnosis is that we rebel to paranormal help. When family members call me up and they say their family member is, is going through ABC and, and I say, fine, bring them in on Wednesday. And Wednesday morning rolls around and they won't show up. That's the giveaway that, yeah, because uh, they originally agreed to it because the person agreed to it. But when Wednesday rolls around, the uh, spirit inside says, oh, no, I'm not going there. That guy ain't going to like me. And that's pretty much true. I don't like anyone. So when uh, when you have these uh, these symptoms, just remember, ask yourself, what's gotten into you today? That's an awesome article to start out with. And what I like about this article is the fact that you, you know, you cover not only on demonic possession and attachments, but also human spirit attachments. Because when people think about spirit attachments in general, they don't necessarily think that they could be human spirits. It all seems to yeah. be demonic. Yes. And I think when people are experiencing these symptoms, as you just said, that's when you need to step back and, and evaluate and see what's been going on with you. When did you start noticing changes in how you started, mm -hmm. way you started acting towards people, your attitude, how you feel, how you carry yourself? Because human spirits, and I, and I know this from experience, is me being as gifted as I've been, that when you have a human spirit that attached itself to you, nine out of ten times, it's because... That, per, that particular spirit has passed away and maybe they figured that that wasn't their time yet and they refused to go. So what better way to interact than to try and live through you, literally? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what I usually do when I've got a, a patient that, that's reluctant to come to, to my lab and uh, they they don't want to show up. They argue with me, and I what I do is I meet them halfway. Uh, I'll say, okay, let's let's meet down the block. Let's meet at Dairy Queen and just sit there and talk. And then I use conversational hypnosis at Dairy Queen. I'll put them under, and I'll get the spirit out of there. And it's always a win-win because either way, I get ice cream. So. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> That is definitely a win-win. Isn't brought, it? Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm glad you brought this topic forward because I had never heard of spirit attachment syndrome. <clears throat> and like Jen, Jennifer, it evokes 
a lot of association in my mind, especially the sudden onset. I related as a UFO, UFO researcher to reports of all of a sudden people being able to channel perhaps extraterrestrial intelligences or what they're interpreting as that or angelic uh, voices, hearing angelic voices, not just demonic but angelic as well. Channeling and the new term is downloading. I got this download of information and <laughs> if what I'm hearing from you – and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Chuck – if the spirit attachment is painful, we might suspect uh, basically a form of possession is what it sounds like to me. But people yeah. who channel – who believe they are channeling alien intelligences often report it as a positive experience. Does that jive with this spirit attachment syndrome or would you think that well, that they're completely different phenomena? Uh, spirit attachment sen- syndrome never ends up being a positive experience. Uh, yeah. It's always, uh, you know, maybe the, the you go to the ER to uh, get an x-ray on your wrist because you fell. And while you're in the ER, somebody upstairs passes away and that spirit uh, realizes you like to play the piano. Well, they like piano music, so they're going to jump into you for a while. And, yeah, then the piano music's fun and everything, but then they're getting kind of bored because it's just the piano music, and you don't drink. So they're going to get in your ear, and they're going to tell you, hey, you know, that goes so much better with a bottle of scotch or uh, a couple of lines of cocaine. Uh, I have, in town, I have uh, uh, two psychologists and a psychiatrist that have come to learn that... that, uh, when they diagnose people schizophrenic and the treatment doesn't work, they don't have schizophrenia. And there's a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists out there that don't even believe in schizophrenia anymore. They consider it off spirit attachment. Uh, in 1901, the first psychiatric director at the University of Chicago Mental Health Center, uh, Dr. Carl Wickland, he, uh, he didn't believe in schizophrenic. He thought, if you're hearing voices, you're, uh, uh, you've got a spirit attachment, and his wife was a medium, and he turned the patient over to his wife, and his wife had hypnotized the person and get rid of it. And um, and that worked out pretty well. And there's a, there's a lot of books out by different psychologists and psychiatrists. There's uh, a mental health hospital in Naperville, Illinois, that uh, when they feel that their treatments aren't working for whatever reason, they send the person to see me and see if I can uh, get the devil out of them, so to speak. But uh, Well, you raise another interesting point here about hypnosis to draw these entities out. If someone who doesn't live near you and couldn't take advantage of your excellent and professional services wanted to train themselves in this form of hypnotism, how would they go about doing it? It's a good question. Um you know what? Can if we they get want after the commercial, because I, we got a commercial break, and it yeah. sounds like that might take a couple minutes. All right, to answer. so I'll make a note. All right, Mark, our, our first commercial break. You are listening to Paraversal Universe. This is the Paralogian Report. We will be right back with our panel for the next segment. All right. 
You're listening to WBHM, digital broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk only on Paranormal Experience Radio. Broadcasting live, live, live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, come on. I'm Southern, but... Um, nope. That'll do. Hello, I am Kat Hobson, host of Paranormal Experience here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoy having guests from all areas of the paranormal, from ghosts to ufology to cryptids and beyond. You'll find some of the best researchers in their fields bringing you some great information. Join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p. Eastern here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. To the believer, the evidence is overwhelming. To the skeptic, there will never be enough. Hello everyone. Join Kevin and Jennifer Malik, the host of Paraversal Universe, every Friday here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Also heard on WCET-FM and The Rift. Log on or tune in as they check out the mysteries found within the eight categories of the unknown and unexplained, including ghosts and haunted places, aliens and UFOs, theology and mythology, cryptids and monsters, urban legends and folklore, conspiracies, metaphysics, and forbidden archaeology. Listen as Kevin and Jennifer interview the top minds in their respective fields as they share theories and information regarding these unsolved mysteries. For future show and archive information, one can find Paraversal Universe on Facebook, Twitter, and MeWe under various Paraversal Universe headings. So, for excellent talk radio about the unknown and unexplained, check out Paraversal Universe, where all paranormal perspectives apply. Brought to you by the Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society, LTD, and produced by WBHMDB.com. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 23 minutes after the hour. Welcome back from our first commercial break, everyone. This is Paraversal Universe, produced by WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Also heard on WCETFM, High Point Radio, and the Rift Radio Network. We're your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer Malik, and we'd like to take a quick minute to thank everybody who makes Paraversal Universe possible, including graphic art director Lawrence D. Miza, music theme by Matt Stenz, announcer Frank Lee, producer and owner at WBHN, Kat Hobson, also to Howie O'Dell and Lisa Renaga and the Rift family, and to Michael Vera at WCETFM. Thank you all for carrying our content and working together on our behalf and the behalf of the audience everywhere. And, of course, a huge thank you to God in heaven, whose strength beyond strength is stronger than all, for granting us this wonderful show and opportunity here to be with you all. Amen. And appreciation to all the various platforms we are on, including Spotify, iTunes, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Twitch, YouTube, 
Daily Motion, Talkstream Live, TuneIn, Blog Talk, Podbean, Google Play, Mixcloud, and Paranormal Livestream app, which is streamed and restreamed from various other outlets all over the world via the internet. And that list just keeps growing and growing. This segment of Paraversal Universe is brought to you by the UFO Wisconsin Research Team, Wisconsin's alternative to MUFON, and also by the Paranormal Daily News, who now have a page on their face on their website dedicated to Paraversal Universe, including the Paralogian Report, where our latest episodes are linked and listed. And uh, we are in Paralogian Report mode. Speaking of which, and we are joined by fellow correspondents today, parapsychologist Jean Broida, paranormal investigator Kat Hobson, and neuroscientist Dr. Chuck Kennedy, along with Jennifer and myself. And uh, when we went to break, uh, Jean had asked Dr. Chuck a question, so I'll uh, pass this over to Jean and she can re-ask him. Unfortunately, I wrote it down, so this will be quick. Where can someone learn how to hypnotize and draw out spirits? Well, see, that's actually two questions. And the thing oh, is... fine. Uh, Dr. Nitpick. I'm not nitpicking. I'm trying to, to make a point. It's, <laughs> it's simpler. That if you look at it as one question, it seems very complex. But the reality is hypnotism is very simple. And when you get right down to it, all hypnotism is a variation of self-hypnosis because the facilitator just guides the, the uh, client into a relaxed state so that they can then get into theta and then drift off into a hypnotic state. And so they're basically just a guide. Now the thing is, now you got the person hypnotized. What do you want them there for? Why, why did you do that? Is there an issue? Do they have a phobia? Is there a weight problem? Is there a smoking issue? Uh, is you want to do past life regression? And that's called the script. And the script is now you got the person hypnotized. You take them through the script to undo what you um, um, you want undone. And uh, so the the thing is with. Um, with doing spirit attachment syndrome, you get, there's the one, you can go to any one of the schools out there on how to uh, hypnotize somebody, the basics of hypnosis, which are really quite simple. And, uh, or if you want, contact me and I'll teach you how to hypnotize people. I do a lot of hypnosis over, over the phone. And uh, you can hypno, you get the person hypnotized. And then you go after what you want. The thing about uh, spirit attachment syndrome is once you get the person hypnotized, Gene, I've got you hypnotized, you're hypnotized. Now, Gene, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to whoever's inside of you. Who else is in there? Come red on, rum, come on. Red <laughs> rum. Red rum, red rum. Okay, red rum. Here, here's the bottom line. You had your shot at life, and this is Gene's life, and you have to get the hell out. And, uh, and it's just that simple. You have to get out. It's time to leave. The party's over. And, um, what, um, in some cases, Red Rum doesn't want to leave. 
So then I'll, I'll ask them, uh, Red Rum, I assume, uh, you, you know, if you're, you passed on, I assume your mother's passed on. What's your mother's name? Mrs. Red Rum. Okay, Mrs. Red Rum. And then you call on Mrs. Red Rum to drag his butt out of here. And through various different steps, you, uh, you focus on getting that spirit out of the person. I've only run into where I've had, I think, the most spirit attachments at one time was five. Wow. Uh, there's a lot of documentation where uh, Edith Fiore out in California, she had written a book about how she had a lot of uh, patients that had as many as 100 spirits inside them. And uh, and to me, that's just poor maintenance and, and sloppiness. But uh, the reality is you, when you get them hypnotized, you identify the spirit, you get rid of the spirit, and uh, and then once the spirit is gone, you bring the person back to this reality. And when they're in this reality, then, um, you know, you check in how they feeling so forth and then you do a, a little follow-up over the next couple of days the next couple of weeks and make sure because sometimes the the uh uh the spirits try to be tricky they try to come back again and um uh, uh and that's often uh difficult and you got to really lay down the law and uh make sure that they stay out but it's it's really that simple so the thing is your question is, how do you hypnotize somebody? Well, that's easy. So if you want to know how to hypnotize people, call me, and and I'll talk you through the process. And okay. if you want to know how, um, if you want to know how the scripts, I've got scripts for everything from weight loss to um, when I was down in Branson doing ghost tours, and I was bored during the day. I started doing hypnosis for because. Uh, Branson is seven miles from the Arkansas border and Missouri and Arkansas are number one and two for smoking. So I set up a non-smoking clinic and then I'd have them come back a month later going, yeah, but I'm gaining weight. So then I did a, a combo of hypnosis where so it was, what's that? You're a trained hypnosis though, hypnosis. right? I mean, yeah. hypnosis is not something learned overnight. And I, I would just think that, you know, um, there is learning how to just no hypnosis. I can teach you hypnosis in an evening. Here's the thing. So hypnosis is, is it is literally the thing is uh, knowing what to do with it and how to use it to facilitate saying, your client. That's that's the trick. So, no, you're not going to be able to sit there and solve their um their marriage problems right off the bat. You're not going to be able to sit there and solve a lot of issues right off the bat, but that's the script. When you know the script and what you're doing with the script, and a lot of it is neuro-linguistic programming. It's how you say things to the client and how you word things so that um, it resonates with their subconscious. But you know, the process of hypnosis itself is a piece of cake. How would you, you know, like uh, listeners to contact you? I'm sorry? How would you like listeners to contact you? They can call me at the, the Project Sci Lab, 888-583-1976. 
1976. And you say that's the Psi PSI Institute? Right. Project. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, and, and if you really feel that hypnosis is that difficult, stop and think. Did you ever, you're on your way to work and suddenly you realize, oh, I, I meant to stop at the 7-Eleven. I must have passed it. I don't remember seeing it. Or uh, when your kids were little, you're watching TV or reading a book. And uh, and one of your kids walks in the room and goes, Mom, Mom, Mom. And finally you look up. Those are times you're hypnotized. Hypnotized is just a hyper sense of awareness. You're focused on the book. You're focused on TV. You're focused on driving. You're not focused on, on the traffic itself. And um, so when people tell me, oh, I can't be hypnotized. You know, I I get that you're trying to lie to me, but in reality, you're trying to lie to yourself. Everybody's been hypnotized at one point or another. So being hypnotized is the easy part. But as I said, it's knowing what to do with it once you get somebody hypnotized. Well, that's where the training comes in. And that's, I mean, because if it's not applied, you know, um, in other words, from what I hear, it, it could be very misleading if it's not done right. Like if, yes. if the, the, sure. the, the, yeah. the even what dangerous, what if this entity jumps into you? Oh, not you, but somebody well, untrained. Or before we go off, um, I, I, I just want to, I've been writing stuff down um, and I haven't had a chance to say anything yet about this. <laughs> so I, I need to get some stuff out <laughs> before I have a list of 20 things here. Um, the first thing is neuro-linguistic conditioning. I think is really amazing. We have books in our library about it. Um, and there is something to that. Uh, Walter Brooks, who's in chat, had mentioned psychic vampires. Right. Which can also be from humans who host them. Yes. Uh, and then um, we were talking before earlier about uh, um, attachments and being sick, which was the original uh, context of the story. And it reminded me of a case uh, where... Uh, a man and wife were married and they were having a, a spirit issue. And through this whole process, this guy had a, a serious problem with his right eye to where he had to go see a specialist and, and a blood vessel burst in his eye and he didn't know why. And, and after this whole thing goes on, when they finally realize who the spirit is, it turns out to be her first husband who died and he had lost the <laughs> same right eye in as a childhood when he was 11 right so he was giving the the husband the most pain that he endured by also doing that and then incidentally when the spirit was crossed over the guy had gone back to the eye doctor and the eye doctor was like i can't believe it your eye is healing it's you don't need surgery everything is fine I, i can't explain it so and the last thing i wrote down was just that uh we know chakras uh, like in, in demonology, they say demons attach to chakras, chakra points, or different organs of the body. And them areas can get sick because of the attachment and because that's how that's being attached. And I know that's demonic opposed to human, and I, I'm not sure exactly all the, the little specifics with that. But um, there are so many cases where people have been delivered or liberated, and right afterwards, some ailments they've had have just mysteriously cleared up so um there is something to all this i actually find that the most fascinating part of this study 
is the healing. I think it's just yes. such mm-hmm. a blessing when you get to see that happen. And then also really quickly too, another factor, when you talk about chakras and all that, look at the aura. Look at the human aura. There have been cases, especially when it comes to both human and non-human attachments or possessions, people have had reports of their aura being yellow, which is a really sickly color with black spots. Oh. And after they've had their attachments removed, the aura not only changes colors, but the spots go away. Hmm. So does anyone else have anything to add? Dr. Chuck, would you like to, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's right. I have, I had, I remember one case, I had a woman come in who, um, she hadn't walked in, in almost a year and she was wheelchair bound. And, um, so she wheeled into my office and she walked out. And, uh, and she had to use a cane because her legs weren't strong. But uh, but by getting rid of the spirit attachment, uh, after about two weeks, she was done with the cane and everything, and she was walking again. That's so uh, these spirits, they, they really can affect your health in so many ways. And, um, uh, and it's, uh, it's all fixable. Would you agree, Dr. Kennedy, that mainstream science, by and large, mainstream psychologists deny the existence of the spirit realm and won't won't allow for it? I know you started your article by talking about a researcher decades ago who would do a medical exam, a psychological exam, and then if he identified a spirit, turn things over to his medium wife for expulsion of this thing. Right, but it's my understanding that mainstream psychology today and for a long time has said there's just no such thing as spirits, ghosts, no after-death experience, no UFOs, none of this paranormal stuff exists. Are you seeing any shift in that attitude? Uh, Yes, it's pretty much split, and it's probably 75-25, where uh, 75% of the... uh, the field feels that uh, no, there's no nothing like that. But um, but you got to remember too, the number one treatment for uh, PTSD is EMDR. EMDR can cure a PTSD patient in as little as six episodes. But when you go to your, uh, you get diagnosed with one of these. Uh, high price diagnosis and you see your psychologist and he sits down and figures out a treatment plan for you twice a week for the next three years. Uh, he's already calculating the payments for his Beamer and uh, you go see a hypnotist and in three, four sessions, you're done. So a lot of the mainstream doesn't accept any of the, the uh, woohoo sciences like hypnotism because it cuts into their whole lifestyle. What is EMDR? Eye movement desensitization reprogramming. And it's the, um, it's the treatment of choice for PTSD. Uh, when I was down in Texas, I was volunteering at a homeless shelter. There was a lot of, uh, uh, veterans and they had PTSD and I would do three, four sessions with them on EMDR. We'd 
uh, eliminate the uh, unprocessed memory of whatever gave them the, the stress. And I'd go back to a homeless shelter next week, and I'd go, hey, where's James? And they go, oh, he's doing better. He went out and got a job. So EMDR can, you know, when you look at what, how quickly um, things like EMDR, hypnosis, and, and uh, rapid retraining, it can, can change the way a lot of these treatments go. And that's powerful because um, on one side, it it takes all of the steam out of the, uh, the typical classic therapist who he makes his living seeing you twice a week for five, six years, sometimes 10 years. And, uh, and that's how you end up uh, uh, buying his Bentley. But, uh, uh, and we have Sigmund Freud to thank for that the years of therapy, lengthy sessions with no real Sigmund, positive outcome. Oh. Sigmund Freud, yes. Sigmund Freud, yeah, that, that guy. Um, let's see, he's dead, he can't sue me. Yeah, I can say that. Sigmund Freud, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you gotta work your plan, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> We have one minute until commercial break, so why don't we just take our our break now? You are listening to Paraversal Universe. This is the Paralogium Report. We will be right back with our panel for the next segment. You are listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk, only on Paranormal Experience Radio, broadcasting live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Come on, I'm Southern, but... Um, nope. That'll do. Hello, I am Kat Hobson, host of Paranormal Experience here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. I enjoy having guests from all areas of the paranormal, from ghosts to ufology to cryptids and beyond. You'll find some of the best researchers in their fields bringing you some great information. Join me on Wednesday nights from 8 to 10 p. Eastern here on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Since 1948, Fate Magazine has brought you reports of the strange and unknown, all of them true. Fate Radio is carrying on that tradition, bringing you the unusual, macabre, strange, and bizarre. Join host Cat Hobson Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 45 minutes after the hour. Welcome back from our second break. This is Paraversal Universe on WBHM. Digital broadcasting, 
also heard on WCETFM, High Point Radio, and the Rift Radio Network. We're your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer Malik. Before we get back to the show, we want to tell you all that we are also on MeWe and Twitter. Our liking group pages on Facebook are under various headings as well. Having said that, check out our Society's Like page on Facebook, the Paranormal Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society Limited, as well as Jennifer's Like page, Jennifer Malik, Psychic Demonologist. Leave a like if you like what you see. We always appreciate it. And this segment is brought to you by Gene Breida's latest book, Unknown Objects, Top 10 U.S. UFO Cases. Of course, she's a correspondent here at the Paralogian Report. Any comments for this week's show can be addressed in the live chat room. Let's get back to the show. Uh, this is the Paralogian Report, Fringe News and Analysis. And it sounds like Jennifer is going to go next. Okay, so the article that I chose um, comes from a website called thehardysoul.com. It is dated, it was posted on August 7th of 2019 and updated on August 8th of 2019. Trial looking to bring clinically dead back to life. It is sometimes frightening how well class, well, classic fiction predicts the future. For instance, Fahrenheit by 451 by Ray Bradbury describes earbuds well before they were ever developed. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is another terrifying example. Recently, researchers are once again looking for ways to reverse death, and they may have found a solution. A new trial may bring the, be- may bring the dead back to life. The Reanimia Project. For this study, the researchers will use stem cells as a reset button for the body to erase cell damage and stimulate tissue regeneration. According to those involved, the research may lead to complex tissue and organ regeneration, disease reversion, and even biological age reversal. The trial will be run by Indian specialist, Dr. Himanashi Bensal and biotech companies called Revital Life Sciences. Sciences. Twenty patients are the subject of the study. They are all brain dead, which is considered clinical death and are only kept alive through life support. The test will involve injecting brain stem cells and peptides into their brains bi-weekly over six weeks and a series of other treatments, including lasers and nerve stimulation techniques which have brought patients out of comas in the past. The researchers believe the stem cells will follow a similar process. Salamander cells used to regrow limbs. That is differentiating into functional brain cells. The patients will be monitored for several months through brain imaging equipment for signs of regeneration, especially in the upper spinal cord where the brainstem controls breathing and the heartbeat. This represents the first trial of its kind and another step towards the eventual reversal of death in our lifetime, said Dr. Ira Pastor, 
the CEO of BioCork, to undertake such a complex initiative, we are combining biologic regenerative medicine tool, medical, I'm sorry, yeah, medicine tools with other existing medical devices typically used for stimulation of the central nervous system in patients with other severe disorders of consciousness. We hope to see results within the first two to three months. The initial stage is called first, first in human neuroregeneration and neuroreanimation and will take place at the Anupam Hospital in Rudrapur. Sorry if I'm butchering names here. Atakarhad, uh, Kahad, India. Since the first stage has small and non-random size, it is more of a proof of concept than a conclusive study. Dr. Bansell claimed to have some previous success with two patients in the Gulf and in Europe. They are still in a minimal conscious state, but who knows that they may, that they may or may, may come out and have reasonable, conscious, useful human life. Pastor added, it is a long time, it is long-term version of ours that a full recovery in such patients is a possibility, although that is not the focus of the first study. But it is a bridge to that eventuality. To that eventuality, the trial is estimated to begin to begin in July of this month and end in July of 2021. And the article goes on, but I'm going to keep it short here and just ask what everybody's thoughts around this. I thought it was interesting because I had covered this topic before, mm-hmm. but when I back when I first covered it there was very little to no information. So when I came across this, I thought this was a perfect follow-up for the one I did on a previous episode. Without a doubt. And can I can I ask a question or two right quick? Yeah, Everybody in fact, can... we haven't heard much from you at all, Kat. Which is astounding, right? Yeah. But um, with this particular topic, I find it interesting because are they... Once they have accomplished the reanimation, the neuroregeneration, then who gets to choose who gets this treatment? Because you you come into a medical ethics issue. And we already have a planet that is way overpopulated beyond being able to support the people that live on it. That That was was the case back in the 80s. Yeah, we were told at that point in time that we've, Yet the population on Earth was non-sustainable. Even back when I was a kid in the 60s, it was, you know, population zero was a real thing. Quit putting people out there. So now we're going to prevent natural process from eliminating people. But is it going to be only people who have cash? Or only people who are PhDs who are doing incredible research work? Is it going to be people who, you know, have what's perceived as a right as government or ruling monarchs or, you know, who gets this treatment and who gets to determine 
who gets this treatment because it won't be the insurance companies. And what because if the this police can't be covered. ordered somebody to be somebody brain dead? By the way, it's important to realize this researcher is talking only about brain death, somebody in a coma, basically, right? Yeah. So what if the police ordered you bring this person out of their coma by reversing tissue death? Mm-hmm. We interrogate them and then we execute them. I mean, how bizarre. Well, yeah. you know, if you reanimate them, then would they even have to go through the criminal justice system? I mean, because most places do not believe in the death penalty or utilize it unless you're outside of America and then it happens more often than not. But the, um, you know, are you going to just undo whatever you did to them or are we actually going to have to support them for 30 years until they actually get a death date? No, that's a really good question. And they this didn't is target murder anybody. society. Right. They didn't target any specific area where it came to people as far as finances go, but I completely understand that. And then, you know, you have people that may have been so that may be so terminally ill that they want to go. And so here you're doing this process. And in my opinion, you're playing God. You are playing God. There is no playing. You are becoming God. Right. Well, we already play God, and we have the do not resuscitate orders in medical directives. We have provisions for not being brought back. I'm just throwing that out there. Well, right. but that's not I, playing I God. That is a choice this. and an Certainly, individual choice. This is not. Yeah. I understand why this doctor is excited about bringing dead tissue or damaged tissue back to a normal state through stem cells and uh, what was the other thing, proteins or something along that the line. peptides, collagen and peptides, Pepti- because Pepti- this is not necessarily, you're going, you're not going to be having damaged tissue because this is neuroregeneration. Right. You are completely regenerating this. You are right. reanimating it, everything. It's along the line of reading stories about researchers able to and actually genetically recreating extinct dinosaurs from DNA out of amber, things like that, samples. Yes, but... Just because you can do it, should you do it? No. Right. And then if you look at the mind, you know, when they're successful in bringing these these case studies back, what if they have complete amnesia? What are are, the... Do they have the, the, the tools necessary to help combat or to deal with that. Can Maybe you the imagine the emotional stress? Like a computer. Sorry, can't. Well, bringing them back to life just for the sole purpose of finding out why they died. You know, I mean, once they're back to life, then, you know. Uh, they're here. I, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. That's And I don't think anybody's really looked at the big picture the scientists that are doing this they just want to see if they can do it and the implications don't matter to them exactly Uh, and the people that can afford it are not the people in india so they're not doing it for their own people so they're not uh trying to help their people uh they're looking for for a name for themselves and they're not trying to promote science. They're trying to promote themselves. And yes. they want to become famous. When I used to run nursing homes, I always said, if you really want to see the dead come to life, 
you should see my staff at quitting time. But that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> True that. I thought but, you were going to bring up accordion music or something. <laughs> but, the, that's, but the reality is these people, you, you guys are raising all these ethical issues that are so important. And the people that are doing this, they don't—they haven't thought about it. They don't care about it, and they won't even address those issues because they're just looking at, "Gee, I can get famous if I do this," and that's all they care about. Well, you know, something that is tragic is that you know Walt says lots of billion <clears throat> billionaires, millionaires, rajas in India, but the general population of India is horribly poor. There exactly. is, and you know, if you are, if you are a monk, then yeah, you know, you've got the Dalai Lama's monastery up there in the northwest. Then you've got people who are still trying to flee and being taken out from Tibet, and yeah, you know, there's so many other critical mass scenarios in that nation, and right. none of that. And in the 30 years I've been paying attention to it, nothing's been done about any of that. And yet we're going to be doing this so that, you know, we can get our names in books and write papers and be lecturers. Right. And then you have to look at one last thing before, you know, we jump on to Kevin's article. But, you know, another thing, too, what about side effects I read that whole entire article and they didn't even mention anything about the possibility of side effects. So what if they do this and something doesn't take like you should? What if Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Mr. Hyde are not together in that body anymore, but you have just the one extreme? What if you split a personality? This this article was written to try to, to sell their point of view and they don't want to talk about the negatives. All right, so why don't we move on to the next Well, they week? should talk to us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll set them straight. <laughs> Not that any you know, of us are opinionated. Um, yeah, I just, this, again, this bringing the dead. I mean, we do resuscitate people. We do bring we them do. back to life. How far are we willing to go and for what purpose um, becomes a question. And for all the things that they're doing that we know about, there are a hundred things, if not more, they're doing that we don't know about. And it's when you listen to the conspiracy analysts, some of the scariest stuff is when they talk about the the uh, genetic engineering going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. The Frankenstein right. projects. Yes. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. and they're real. Okay. Just before, we, you know, so Walter Brooks brings up a, a good point. And in India, the Hindu belief was, is that the human physical existence is the highest spot for humans. So they would probably favor transfer of consciousness, etc., for physical immortality, not Buddhist belief, but Hindu. Yes. Well, that's an astute observation. Thank you, listener. And 
since we have one minute, why don't we take our break now? Sure. You are listening to Paraversal Universe. This is the Paralogium Report. We will be back. We will be right back with our panel for the next segment. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Dorian is now a hurricane. The U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico are facing their first major test of emergency preparedness since both U.S. territories were ravaged by Hurricane Maria some two years ago. This latest storm potentially sets back two years of difficult recovery for the island's millions of Americans. NPR's Adrian Florido is tracking developments in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The National Hurricane Center is warning of heavy rains and high winds across much of Puerto Rico. The most intense impacts are expected on Vieques and Culebra, two small island municipalities off the eastern coast of Puerto Rico's Big Island. They, along with the U.S. and British Virgin Islands, could see hurricane conditions. In Puerto Rico, schools and government offices are closed today, so are many businesses, Hospitals are activating emergency plans, and many dialysis patients are being moved up for treatment for fear of possible power outages. Across the island, people are continuing to stock up on water and other supplies, and there are reports that an 80-year-old man died after falling from his roof while cleaning storm drains in preparation for Dorian's arrival. Adrian Florido, NPR News, San Juan, Puerto Rico. As Puerto Rico's U.S. citizens brace for a dangerous storm, President Trump tweets that Puerto Rico is one of the most corrupt places on earth. His disparaging tweet is drawing swift criticism from both Democrats and Republicans. Republican Alice Stewart, a resident fellow at Harvard Institute of Politics, was asked a short time ago on NPR's Here and Now, where's the president's empathy? It's non-existent. And I would like to remind anyone who has any questions about this is that Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. And it is our responsibility to make sure that they get the help and the assistance that they need. That's Alice Stewart being interviewed on NPR's Here and Now. Again, Dorian has grown into a Category 1 hurricane. Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson is resigning from office at the end of this year. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler reports Isaacson cites ongoing health concerns. The 74-year-old Republican says he is leaving the job that he loves because his health challenges are taking their toll on him, his family, and his staff. Isaacson has Parkinson's disease, which he says is getting worse. He also fractured several ribs in a fall this July, and just this week, doctors removed a mass from his kidneys. Next fall, Georgia's other senator, David Perdue, will be up for re-election. So will Isaacson's replacement, appointed by Governor Brian Kemp. That means every member of Congress from Georgia will be on the ballot in 2020. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. U.S. stocks are trading higher this hour with the Dow up 210 points at 25,988. The Nasdaq is up 21 at 7,848. S&P is up 16 points or more than half a percent. This is NPR News. The venerable department store Lord & Taylor is being sold to an online startup called Latosa Subscription Service that Let's women rent clothes, and it's buying Lord & Taylor for $100 million. NPR's Alina Soluk has details. The Tote is a seven-year-old clothing rental subscription startup. It's planning to buy one of the oldest operating department stores in the United States. Lord & Taylor currently belongs to Canada's Hudson's Bay Company, and it's the latest example of a once-luxurious and prosperous store that has struggled to recreate itself for the new era of shopping. The company has recently closed its flagship store on New York's Fifth Avenue and sold the 
building. If the deal clears, Latote will take over 38 Lord and Taylor locations and the company's brand. Latote says it plans to keep quote the vast majority of Lord and Taylor employees. Hudson's Bay will keep ownership of the real estate and get a stake in Latote. Alina Salyuk, NPR News. It is now official. The CITES International Endangered Species Convention meeting in Geneva has agreed to exempt musical instruments from trade restrictions on rosewood. NPR's Robert Benincasa has more. Musical instruments were swept up in trade restrictions on rosewood in 2017 amid concerns about strong demand for rosewood furniture in China. Instrument makers lost sales and musicians and orchestras worried their instruments might be seized as they traveled abroad. The exemption will allow instruments and their parts to cross borders without permits. It takes effect in about 90 days. Robert Benincasa, NPR News. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News in Washington. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Paraversal Universe and the Paralogian Report. Now in our second hour, produced by WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. Also heard on the Rift Radio Network out of Virginia, WCETFM out of South Carolina, and High Point Radio on the top of New Jersey. We're your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer Malik, coming to you from Rylander, Wisconsin, here in the USA at the Northwoods Paranormal Resource Center. You can always enjoy excellent fringe talk radio for awesome and informative uh, radio shows about the paranormal, supernatural, esoteric, and Fortean topics on this network and affiliate platform websites. Not only our show, but many other good shows about different facets of the unknown and unexplained. Much to listen to and much to enjoy. Stream live on TuneIn, iTunes, and the Paranormal Livestream app. Available from Android app and the iTunes store. This segment is brought to you by the Supernatural magazine, where our articles can be read. All right. Back to Paraversal Universe and the Paralogian Report, uh, which covers news, history, and analysis about topics from the fringe recesses of the world with a most diverse and experienced panel presenta- uh, found on Fringe Radio. And today's correspondents include uh, psychologist and ufologist Jean Broida, Paranormal investigator Kat Hobson, neuroscientist and hypnotherapist Dr. Chuck Kennedy, psychic and religious demonologist Jennifer Malik, and myself. And we got our bases covered here today. So, mm-hmm. uh, so next up with an article for everybody is Jean. Take it away, Jean. Well, hi everybody. Jean Broida here with an article that appeared in Survival Update a couple of days ago. I wrote this one for the Survival Update team, and the title is Tiny Human Skeleton Fossils in Antarctica. And I apologize now for any background noise. It is thundering up a storm here where I am. Here we go. Ten years ago, a discovery in the stone-strewn Whitmore mountain range of Antarctica rocked the scientific world. But most people never heard anything about the tiny human fossils measuring about nine inches long that date back 600 million years ago. 
that were unearthed there. This is a true story dished by the National Reporter on December 5th, 2009. It seems that a group of paleontologists who study fossils as the record of life on Earth went to the icy wasteland of the world's southernmost continent to look for evidence that dinosaurs lived on the Antarctic continent when it was still attached to modern-day Africa and South America. Instead, one of the scientists cracked open a rock deemed most likely to contain some fossils based on its type and age and was astonished to find the perfectly preserved remains of a tiny human skeleton. Quote, the first skeleton we found was hidden within the layers of a large piece of sedimentary rock that we had broken loose from the mountainside, unquote, said Dr. Marley, who witnessed the incredible find. The paleontologist split open another rock and found a second miniature perfectly formed human-looking skeleton. Quote again, the second skeleton was, in very good, was a very good specimen. Unlike the first one, the second skeleton was in a fully extended position with excellent detail, unquote. Dr. Marley from England's Cambridge University explained how unlikely finding any human remains so long ago is and is why scientists are in such a tizzy about this singular discovery. Quoting again, 600 million years ago, jellyfish first appeared. There were no human beings in the world, and there wouldn't be any for nearly 560 million years. There weren't even any dinosaurs around at that time, unquote. These two human fossils predate dinosaurs and coincide with a time when life on planet Earth was still confined to the oceans. Species were evolving into amphibious and then lung-breathing land animals. Advanced mammals and proto-humans came much, much later, or so we've been told. Mainstream archaeologists and anthropologists have always maintained that dinosaurs existed before any humans appeared on the planet, even though human and dinosaur footprints occur together in the limestone beds of the Paluxy River near Glen Rose, Texas. If true, such a finding would dramatically contradict the conventional geologic timetable which holds that humans did not appear on Earth until over 60 million years after the dinosaurs became extinct. That's talking about the Glen Rose, Texas site. Dr. Marley in, in Antarctica shared the psychological and temporal time disconnect his team felt when they saw what was inside the Antarctic stones. Quote, when we split the rock apart, we were completely confused. Here was this fossil from an age when the appearance of the first vertebrates was still millions of years off, and it was a complete skeleton. And on, not only that, it appeared to be human. And then I'll add to the quote, not only that, there were two of them in the same place. 
So this evidence of human existence is older by far than that of any other animal, four-legged or two-legged, or even an organism that lived on land. Experts confirm that the shape of the bones identifies them as human rather than as some other form of primate, and that the intact condition suggests that these were adults rather than children. But the brightest scientific minds don't know who these small people were or where they came from. Quote, it is quite obvious from our study of these skeletons that they are definitely human and not a species of primate. Who they were and how how large their population was, and if they were technologically advanced, is a complete mystery, unquote. Another mystery surrounding the diminutive humans is that experts believe no food or other basic survival resources were available in that part of the world where the two fossils were found. So what did these creatures eat and how could they live? Ruling out a native species, unless they were advanced enough not to need to prey on other species for sustenance, the only other plausible option is that the humanoids came from somewhere else, unquote. Yet archaeologists deny that these fossilized, fossilized beings are of extraterrestrial origin, nor did they come here from other worlds. They have no explanation for the presence in Antarctica of tiny humans so much further back in time than ever imagined. We now know that the, from the fossil record that Antarctica was covered in forests 260 million years ago. These fossils date to 360 million years ago, much earlier. Fossils of unidentified tiny humans who lived in Antarctica 600 million years ago is proof of one thing. Mainstream scientific theories aren't always right and have a history of changing to suit the facts eventually. Has anybody else ever heard of these 600-year-old human skeletons, tiny, found in Antarctica? I never had. I never had. I find it odd that there were only two, especially in such close proximity to each other in separate stones. I know. We don't know where they took samples exactly, but they were looking for the same kind of rock, apparently. Yes. So it's just interesting to me that in that whole area, they only found two. But when those two rocks were so close together. But I think, you know, I sit there and I look at this. And this is well before the Atacama Mummy coverage. This was, what, 2009 and Atacama was... I don't even remember when Atacama was found. Let me see if I, I had the same. It. I had the same notion. But, you know, but the Atacama, which is obviously not human in appearance and has so many DNA uh, genetic mutations, there were seven in the Atacama's genes, seven mutations, seven of the genes, abundance of mutations found in seven of those genes. And it's formed like the ones that were in, in Antarctica. You know, the the original report said that it's formed, the, you know, the areas are fused that would be in an adult. And then, it, you know, they start calling it a fetus and stuff. It's just like, 
I don't understand why there have only been three of these found in the world. I don't think that's a reality. But I do think it's cool that they're being found, period. Because I thought that the fossils that you were reporting on were beautifully preserved in that stone. Absolutely beautifully preserved. It's too bad people can't see the picture, but they could go look it up. Yes. Oh, no, somebody actually just posted, I believe it was Sudan. Sudan actually, if I'm not mistaken, just posted a picture in yes. the chat room. I'll say that, you know, with with stuff like this, because, we, you know, with a lot of this stuff, it's hard to tell if it's legit or not, you know. I know, right? Yeah. But so what I, for me, what I do is I look to the history and I look to the folklore. And we have little people in our folklore. We have little people, uh, you, you know, leprechauns and and uh, gnomes. Yeah, you know, pixies, right? Yeah. Fairies. 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 So, yeah, these. I mean, to me, at some at some point, somebody, if these things are real, somebody has come across them. As far as the things that are being covered up that we don't get to see, those kind of finds are perfect examples of which. Um, I think that a lot of uh, super fantastic finds get covered up. I think things a lot of them are, are hidden in the Smithsonian <laughs> or in warehouses around <laughs> D.C., that's but, been pretty well established, actually, I think. Yes, it has. The Smithsonian is guilty of covering up giant skeletons. Absolutely. That's, skeletons. That's a story I covered a long time ago, and yeah, it's ongoing. Yeah. It's ongoing. Right. I, this, all, this, all these thoughts uh, coincide, not, not only giants, but now tiny, tiny humans. This, it's just mind-blowing to me. And, and, you know, Kat, we don't have any proof that they only found two. And very little real detail was given in these articles. I thirst for knowledge. And it's not clear how close these rocks were actually situated in the mountain or if even they knew where they all quarried from the same place, where they picking along a mountainside and chipping some here and chipping some there. None of this was detailed. So maybe they found more than two. And like with Roswell, when the story was first revealed, it was an unidentified flying object. And the next day, it was a weather balloon. See what I mean? I do, but I still think, like with the Atacama mummy, the people of Peru in the area of this desert say that these are nocturnal beings who who are on the desert floor at night. There's not... And there's not just one mummy. There's not just one skeleton. Oh, there's so, a whole bunch of them. Of the, the Atacamas, yes. Yeah, they are race. actually... Yeah, anytime that you have something like this, I, I love this topic because I have seen this past year two different anomalies that were taken in for DNA testing in mainstream labs, who the initial conversation coming out of those labs from the directors and other people speaking with the researchers who brought the the anomalous objects to them were, this is not human. 
This doesn't appear to be human. This appears to be blah, 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 blah. Well, by the time the initial written report comes out, oh, yes, these are definitely human. Twice in a year. So it gives one pause to wonder what would be the reason for paying no attention to this man behind the curtain because these things are human. Well, the ones from Antarctica appear to be human in nature. I didn't count the ribs, but that's something that will be fun to do in a moment. And, you know, you go down through the the history and looking at them and somebody in chat says, you know, they appear to be etched. They, they look well drawn. So, and I'm not somebody that knows anything about those kind of things, but it really is, it really is an interesting topic because we have no idea. And no. if these people were alone breaking these stones open themselves and lo and behold, finding them, then that would be, that would almost taint that. Well, you're suggesting faking, aren't you? You know, shamsters. Well, I am, but yes, we do. All right, so why don't we continue this discussion after this commercial? You are listening to Paraversal Universe. This is the Paralogian Report. We will be right back with our panel for the next segment. You are listening to WBHM, digital broadcasting, the best in paranormal talk only on Paranormal Experience Radio. Broadcasting live, live, live out of Birmingham, Alabama. Several U.S. presidents are on record talking about the UFO mystery. Yep. Presidents Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, both had UFO sightings of their own, but the current presidential campaign might be the first in which UFO disclosure has been championed by a major party candidate. DIA, CIA, it moves around, is operating a program to train psychic spies to spy and use their powers against Russia. John Ronson writes about this in The Men Who Stare at Goats. The first known sighting of a ghost took place right after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated uh, in the late 1860s during the administration of Ulysses Grant. Project Paperclip, Clinton releases it all in 1998. Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I say to you, still think it's a meteor, Professor. I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. It's a place where UFO hunters and scientists gather to examine paranormal activity in the region. Some of the documents, this is bringing Nazi scientists into the United States to work here. So we fought against the Nazis, and it's not, this again is not a revelation. As early as 1947, 1946, we knew some of this, right? On the paranormal, will we see U.S. President Barack Obama's foreign policy go intergalactic in a quest for gold stolen by aliens? We'll tell you at least how the White House responded to claims the chief executive has been teleporting to Mars. 
So let's get to today's capital account. UFOs. Hauntings. Psychic abilities. Conspiracy. ESP. Cryptozoology. There are many things that remain unexplained in the inexplicable world around us. And we're talking about them here, looking for answers on WBHO Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. The truth is out there. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 23 minutes after the hour. Hello, everyone. Welcome back from our commercial break. This is Paraversal Universe, produced by WBHM Digital Broadcasting. We're your host, Kevin and Jennifer Malik. Also heard on the internet on the Rift Radio Network. And before we get back to the show, let's also take a quick moment during this hour to specifically mention the radio call dials for the AM, FM, terrestrial radio stations who carry Paraversal Universe, including WCET on 101.7 FM out of Columbia, South Carolina, and then High Point Radio, which can be found on 100.5 FM and 1620 AM out of New Jersey, which broadcast in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. So hello to all of you who are tuning in over the airwaves, and hello to everybody who is tuning in over the internet. And hello to everybody listening to the archives. Thank you all so much. We're always glad you're with us. And uh, this segment is brought to you by the Parasociology Like page on Facebook. Parasociology is a study of how paranormal manifestations and experiences can affect a family, group, or collective. Parasociology also examines how spirituality is practiced in different cultures. So go check that out and leave a like for future content. All right, back to the show. This is Paraversal Universe and the Paralogian Report. And uh, we are joined by parapsychologist Gene Breida, paranormal investigator Kat Hobson, and neuroscientist Dr. Chuck Kennedy, along with Jennifer and myself. And we're the panel today for the Paralogian Report. I wanted to say really quickly um, and get back to what we were talking about really quick behind before the commercial break. You know, I think it's a possibility. Which was teeny tiny, like mm-hmm. nine inch skeletons, human yeah. fossils yeah. found I, in the Whitmore Mountain Range of Antarctica for viewers who, I'm sorry, listeners who just tune in. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jen. Yes, thank you. And I think it's a fascinating, top, uh, fascinating topic because there are a ton of, there are a ton of small be- types of beings we could talk, we could sit here and talk about all day long, but I think I'm more curious to see if we ever come across any etchings of these, you know, these skeletons, you know, because if you look at the history of throughout mankind, whenever we've seen something we can't explain or something that amazes us, even if it wasn't, you know, written pen or paintbrush, people, you know, did scribing and engraving. So who's to say that at some point we might get to hear more about this topic in um, respects to having transcribed accounts, so to speak. Right, it will be is... cool if we do. Yeah. Yep. What about Dr. Chuck? 
I think it's an interesting topic, but I think uh, with just two skeletons, there's going to be a whole lot more. We need a whole lot more data to really come to any type of conclusion, whether it's real, imaginary, or if it's just plain out and out faked. But I could believe the whole concept that, that there was a group that was running out of grant money and needed to produce something for to keep their grants going. Uh, it is sadly, there's no. Yeah, sadly, there's no ethics in science, and uh, so anything's possible there. And the fact that we haven't heard anything for ten years would tend to support that theory. It seems to me. Yes. Yeah, because I would think that after the initial report, there would have been uh, other people uh, pouring to the area to examine and look for things. And uh, and no one's come up with anything. So, uh, well, actually, there are some very bizarre things being uncovered in Antarctica around the McMurdo U.S. Science Station, which is a yeah. reasonable point of departure because that's where all the transports come in—ships and the occasional plane during certain season there. So, west of McMurdo, they found these huge octagon structures, and Linda Moulton Howe, who the famed Cattle, bloodless cattle mutilation and UFO researcher has been interviewing former Navy SEALs who were there and describing that. That's bizarre, and I leave it to everybody to look that up on your own. But also, uh, two days ago, somebody in Norway posted, I've been looking at Google Earth, and it sure looks like there's an alien face sculpted, basically, in snow and ice on mountains in this north of the base – and on a, a peninsula that juts nor- out of northeastern Antarctica. And the satellite images do l- make it look like an alien face, but we know that imagery of any kind is subject to human interpretation. And you guys knew the word for that thing where you mistake a random Pareidolia. pattern. For that Pareidolia. Yeah. Pareidolia. So it may be a case of that. But. There are strange doings in Antarctica, I'll tell you what. And a lot of ufologists believe that melting ice is going to reveal evidence that governments don't want the average person to know. Yes. And why is that base down there and no fly zone? Exactly. So when you talked about uh, why didn't a slew of researchers follow up, maybe they didn't get permission to do so. Because it's my understanding you have to go through channels to do stuff down there. Oh, somebody in the chat brought up a really good, you know, possibility here too. Face in Antarctica could also be done by the same artists that bring us crop circles. Or it could be an anomaly that with time, like the face on Mars will be shown to not be so much. Or it could be something that the McDonnell Douglas employees are doing in the long, cold winter. Yeah. (laughs) Trying to kill time. Mess with us. Yeah. Gives me a chance quick to plug our one of our like pages, uh Paradelia and Visual Matrixing on Facebook. Just thought I'd throw that in there because it's a collection that me and Jennifer have been collecting for years of just different examples of Paradelia and Visual Matrixing. Um sometimes go ahead. But you must have an opinion about uh, the images coming out of Mars. All of uh, so many people interpreting um, oh, yeah. curiosity there's, there's a lot rover, of rover imagery. 
I don't know, women standing how there. Is, yeah, monsters. How much paradoxia are we looking at there? It is parad. Most of that's paradoxia. That would be a whole topic for not for a whole other show. For a whole show. <laughs> I have mixed feelings on Mars too, because on one hand, I believe in secret space program, and I think that we've done more than uh, our governments tell us. You know, um, but on the other hand, I know that NASA's driving around Greenland. You know, uh, shooting footage that looks like Mars footage. I mean, that where they're at, you couldn't tell the difference between where they're at on them green, uh, or not green, the the rocky outcroppings that they were seen photo uh, filming. You know, it's like what's NASA doing in Greenland, filming an area that looks just like Mars. You know, uh, so I I saw that um, post. That was fascinating. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, you know, it's. And I saw one similar. I think it was California, though, but maybe it was the same place. Greenland makes sense. Yeah, and it was. It looked pretty incontrovertible, indisputable, because the camera panned from the alleged NASA shot down to a truck labeled NASA parked there on Earth. You know. (laughs) Yeah, busted. Yeah, yeah, big time. <laughs> Between that and their space station CGI right. underwater bubble. Okay, that, that's another. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's another show, too. Embarrassed. <laughs> they're not embarrassed. They're shameless, so they wouldn't be doing that. Well, you got that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, they, they, don't... they all lack empathy. All right. The globalists so, lack so empathy. Kev- so Kevin is up next. Okay, so my article comes from The Guardian. Um, babies develop werewolf syndrome after medicine mix-up in Spain. Authorities say that there are 17 known cases so far after hair loss treatment mistakenly put in reflux medicine bottles. Excuse me. At least 17 children develop so-called werewolf syndrome after a major medicine mix-up, Spain Health Ministry has said. The children, some of them babies, began growing hair all over their body after being given what they thought to be uh, an oxyprazone, a drug that helps with gastric reflux. Uh, After investigating, authorities discovered the treatment actually contained minodrixil, a medication used for the treatment of hair loss. (laughs) The health minister, uh, Maria Lucia Cito, said on Wednesday that they found that the bad batches came from a laboratory that had, uh, quote, put this medication in a container that was marked uh, emoperzone uh, instead of mitodroxyl and distributed to pharmacies as such. The children are now suffering from the hair condition known as uh, hypertrichosis, which causes abnormal hair growth. It is unclear how the laboratory, uh, Pharmacoincia, Seer, a supplier of active ingredients and pharmaceutical base in the southern city of Malaysia or Malaga, made the mistake, which emerged in June. A health ministry spokesman said that the 17 children affected so far in the northern region of Cantabria, uh, in the south of the Venetian south and uh, Valencia in the east. 
Uh, in a statement, the ministry said that the condition was expected to reverse after the children stopped taking the drug, which has been withdrawn from the market. Uh, Casito said the laboratory had been closed as a precaution. Probably a good idea. A spokeswoman for the Addition yeah. <laughs> Health Department said that the four affected children in the southern region, three babies and a seven-year-old girl, were doing well. So... I love a happy ending. Yeah. That's just, uh, you know, there are so many mistakes in the medical industry. And, of course, people win lawsuits all the time and stuff. But there are a lot of times where justice isn't served properly either. Or where the the penance that is paid is will never be enough for lives lost or or you know uh that kind of thing this is interesting i it is and peculiar it's something you don't hear about often you know in this case they expect everything to reverse and it seems to be reversing i mean according to the article um at least that's the prognosis uh but then again, you know, I I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting article. I thought it was some interesting science and uh, and interesting you know. babies. Right. Well, you know, it's like the first right time now. we heard. Well, it's like the first time we heard about this. So who's to say that there hasn't been more than one instance, and this is just now the time where the first time we're hearing about it. Exactly. Well, you know, it's like Kevin said. There are always there are always incidents relevant to oops you know this is just an extreme and um, unbelievably public incident there are so many drugs i mean what if this had been anything else and right. it's given to a baby you're right they're actually lucky that they got the hair growth yes opposed to some poison or something well or well just anything Anything, right? Well, in the United States alone, every year over 25,000 patients die from getting the wrong medicine. Yes. And I've I've been in the hospital when they brought me the wrong medication. I have anaphylactic reactions to fenugreek. I have to take whatever that Mm -hmm. other one is. And fortunately, I'm vigilant because I don't want to croak because of somebody else's mistake. It should be my mistake, Right. But, um, exactly. you know, I, they came in and they had the syringe going for my IV. And I said, what is that? And she said, well, it's for nausea. I said, what is that? And it was fenugreek. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people don't pay attention because we are all humans. We all work too hard. We all have family activities. We have concerns. Our mother may be sick. Our children may be, you know, going to prison or whatever. You know, and your focus is not on the details when you are overwhelmed. And people who work in nursing, all levels of nursing, are overworked because there aren't enough of them. So you're going to have mistakes. And what you're describing, uh, pardon my interruption, but what you're describing, Kat, are are 
innocent mistakes due to overwork, perhaps underpay. But in some positive news and relating back to what Kevin was talking about, justice for victims of medical good medicine gone bad, shall we say, basically malpractice. The Sackler family, which has the controlling interest in Purdue Pharma, is offering, has just offered in the last couple of days to settle 10 to 12 billion dollars. This would resolve some 2,000 lawsuits mostly being brought by states in the United States representing other plaintiffs in their states, people who live in the states. And only of that 10 to 12 billion only, uh, two, two and a half to three and a half billion would come from the Sackler family. But it is perhaps a step forward. I have not done the math. I don't know how many plaintiffs there are. If they all get $500, that isn't a very good deal. You know what I'm saying? But the uh, part of the deal is that the company goes into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and uh, the for-profit company gets reorganized into a public benefit trust corporation, and that legal plaintiffs receive all profits from drug sales and other sources – thereafter basically but the company would probably be wound down it can't uh, it, by the way this company produces oxycontin and other uh, the other oxycodone i think that may be the a opioids that yeah. people were dying from these opioids that are are an epidemic now of addiction in the in the country so we, did they go after the prescribing physicians not to my knowledge not at, uh, perhaps separately but this Sackler family, these Sacklers are apparently notorious, and they are liquidating a smaller pharmaceutical company. The, the crime here is that in the in the late 1990s, people like people in control of the phar- pharmaceutical companies told dispensing doctors that opioids were not addictive, and they are. It was the big lie, akin to tobacco companies saying. Cigarettes aren't harmful. They don't cause cancer. Well, that was a lie, too, and they knew it. They knew it was a lie. These pharmaceutical companies knew that these drugs are highly addictive, and in fact, any doctor with a brain should have known these are highly addictive, but the pharmaceutical companies were offering kickbacks monetary incentives for these doctors to become drug pushers, and they did. They still do. And they overdispensed. And in Florida, I was overdispensed by, get this, dentists. Every dental office I visited in three different moves in a year and a half in Florida offered me to up, not only refill an annual prescription, but up it in terms of the number of pills and the strength of the pills. And they didn't look at, didn't ask me or look for prior prescriptions within that year. And I doubled down a little bit. In case I had an accident or injury, have a stash. You know, I'm not a, I'm not an idiot, but it's it's part of this problem. People who just who get them and take them, and especially juveniles have a sports injury, and they get a prescription, and they take them all, whether they need them or not. Then they go looking for more because they're addicted. So, well, I will say that having spent the better part of four months on oxycodone, um, oxycontin, 
what uh-huh. whichever one I don't remember, but same thing. The, the, the actual the actual medication itself is where the danger is as far as the overdoses go, because you cannot take that medication and be responsible. You, know, you should never be responsible for dispensing that medication to yourself because it it makes you fall asleep, but you only stay asleep a couple of hours. Then you wake up thinking that you're due to take it again. That's where people are overdosing. Okay. And why don't we cover, why don't we continue this discussion after this next break? You are listening to Paraversal Universe. This is the Paralogian Report. We will be right back with our panel for the final segment. You are listening to WPHM Digital Broadcasting, Birmingham, Alabama. In today's breaking news, over 1.8 million people have signed a petition that is circulating throughout social media and online, pledging to raid Area 51 in hopes of freeing any extraterrestrials that could be on site. Also seeking full disclosure from the U.S. government. Could anything actually come of this? What could be the outcome? Find out on our continuing coverage at 9 p.m. Here on WBHM DB Action News. <laughs> You're kidding, right? Most of those people couldn't rate a refrigerator if it weren't for it having a light in there. How about this? For some real information that you can use. Instead of the other, um, sources, stay here where you are, on WBHM, DB, Birmingham, Alabama. Since 1948, Fake Magazine has brought you reports of the strange and unknown, all of them true. Fake Radio is carrying on that tradition, bringing you the unusual, macabre, strange, and bizarre. Join host Cat Hobson Sunday nights from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on WBHM Digital Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to WBHM Digital Broadcasting out of Birmingham, Alabama. The time is 23 minutes after the hour. Alrighty, we're back, everyone. This is Paraversal Universe, produced by WBHM Digital Broadcasting, also heard on WCETFM, High Point Radio, and the Rift Radio Network. We're your hosts, Kevin and Jennifer Malik, and we're glad you're with us, as always. There are some Facebook group pages we'd like for you to check out. The Ultimate Conspiracies group page is one, which is dedicated to conspiracies, crimes, and corruption. Also, check out Lake Monstrosities dedicated to aquatic mysteries and wonders. Feel free to join them both. We would love to see you there. Each network mentioned has a group and like page on Facebook as well, so go check that out for upcoming content. This segment is brought to you by the Five Star Reader's Choice Award-winning Epic Fantasy Trilogy Helm by Robert L. Malik. And back to the show. This is Paraversal Universe and the Paralogian Report. 
Alrighty. Hey, I just want to say first, this Lake Monstrosity's Facebook page you put up is awesome. I love it. Everybody should join Lake Monstrosity's Facebook. Go. Lake join. Monstrosity. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's awesome. Yeah, we are so fortunate to have that page. Uh, honestly, um, right now it's the largest aquatic mysteries and wonders. Uh, Facebook group page on Facebook and uh, wow um, we never would have expected that when we started that out it's been like five years but anyways um, so next we have a is Kat Kat would you like to read your article I would and I believe due to how some of these conversations have gone tonight that this is going to be interesting. I was saving it for my secondary article, but I'm going to use it as my primary. And it is based from February, but I wanted to know, I wanted to get some feedback. So this is relevant to the um, solar flare 10 billion times more powerful than Earth's sun blasted out of Orion's sword. So, in November 2016, astronomers watched a young star some 1,500 light-years away from Earth belch out an explosion of plasma and radiation that was roughly 10 billion times more powerful than any flare ever seen leaving Earth's sun. This sudden stellar eruption may be the most luminous known flare ever released by a young star, and it could help science, scientists better understand the still murky process of star formation. Observing flares around the youngest stars is new territory, and it is giving us key insights into the physical conditions of these systems, Steve Mears, an astronomer and lead author of the study, said in a statement. Mars and his colleagues detected the flare using the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope, perched atop Hawaii's dormant Moana Key volcano. The flare originated from a binary star system a solar system where two big stars orbit around one another, located in the Orion Nebula, some 1,500 light-years away. Researchers reported in the new study, which was published January 23rd in the Astrophysical Journal. This nebula is the closest active star-forming region to Earth and is frequently studied by astronomers interested in the births of stars and planets. You can actually see the nebula with the naked eye when you look for the Orion constellation. It's the middle star in Orion's sword just south of his belt. And you can even, my insert here, you can even see it when you have light pollution when the Milky Way is overhead because it is part and parcel within that. Solar flares occur when a star's magnetic field lines twist and tangle about each other until they snap unleashing the huge amounts of energy and charged particles. According to NASA, a typical solar flare from Earth's sun releases the energy equivalent of millions of 100 megaton hydrogen bombs exploding at the same time. When this energy washes over Earth, it can temporarily knock out satellites and short-circuit technology around the world. One famous flare from 1859, known as the Carrington Event, caused telegraph wires to shoot out sparks that caused offices to burst into flames. So, how did the 2016 flare manage to burst billions of times stronger than our sun's worst solar storms? The researchers aren't sure, 
but it probably has something to do with the fact that the star in question is still very young and sucking up gargantuan amounts of nearby matter to fuel its growth. Equally unknown are the effects that such mass energy expulsions have on young solar systems. The super-hot X-ray radiation emitted from flares like these could potentially change the chemistry of nearby bodies, like meteors, or possibly alter the atmospheres of young planets, the authors wrote. And this was actually updated to correct the date of the Carrington event, which occurred in 1959, not 1859, not 1895. So this was correct. But, you know, this was such a huge deal. This was a huge deal when it was first reported. And all of a sudden, it's radio silence. Have any of y'all heard anything about this since the since the initial report? I have and bear not. in mind that was first published in January on January twenty third of this year. No, I can't say that I have either. Well, astronomy's not really a hot topic in the American press, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> well, but this actually is not just astronomy. This is affecting the the um actual structure of meteorites and potential planets. And we're always concerned about what type of asteroids are coming for us. And this was published not really long after we had a, a meteor heading our way. It's, but nothing else since then. I always wonder when it the government is. goes quiet on something like that. Yeah, exactly. It is odd that there was nothing, no follow-up. There hardly ever is. And they take these, they had a, a, they have a data set of this event, right, this unique event. They'll spend years and years and dollars and dollars, massive amounts of resources, noodling out how this information builds a case for the formation of stars and star systems, uh, to what end? Is it merely academic curiosity, or is there something else behind it? I and are they going to finally come out and it. say the radi- it wasn't really radiation, it was a weather balloon? Touche. But I do find it to be fascinating because we actually are discussing space travel. We actually have propulsion systems that are very close. You don't see those reported very often either. And if you do find one, it's a buried story. And somebody just got it into a journal so that they can let their work be known. But it's fascinating to me that we have all these things working together to get us out here. And yet, if it can alter the structure of a meteor... What would it do to us if we were just driving by in our little Starfleet vehicle, right? Yeah. Oh, you wouldn't I mean, want to do that. <laughs> well, you wouldn't want to, but you wouldn't know it was coming. They put up a chain link fence out there in space with signs saying prohibited, <laughs> violators, trespassers will be shot. But, no I mean, solar flares falling next two miles. Yeah. But, you know, we're we're working toward this being a reality. And yeah, but it's know, that's why they're spending all that time and money looking into it for sure, for sure. Yeah. But, but you it's know, not interesting. Now. I've been interested in stargazing, human origin as it relates to 
myths so-called about star fathers and earth mothers and astronomy studied in college. So I'm into all this stuff. And I write daily articles when I talk to most people, most people I talk to about astronomy or anything about astronomy related to astronomy, including astrology, glaze. They just, their brains <laughs> go numb and they want to be somewhere else. They don't want to talk about this. So we, I think, who are interested in this are unusual. <laughs> And people ask – people who are into UFOs ask each other, why are you into UFOs? What is it about this topic that would make you face public ridicule, being shunned by your family and friends, maybe losing a job? What what drives you to pursue this topic even though it's taboo? You know, and astronomy is not taboo, or is it? You know, you get into moon landing fraud and NASA fraud, uh, smudging images to hide details. A whole Pandora's box opens up. Well, so much is covered. So much is covered up. You know, and solar flares are dangerous. They are dangerous. You know, and uh, you know, a, a solar flare gets close enough. Or, or it gets a, a big enough solar flare could do damage upon the Earth, as far as our electronics and all that kind of stuff. Not, I mean, I'm saying like if our, you know, because our sun has flares and stuff. Often, and they do not get reported as they should, because they, have, they are a danger. And some weird UFOs around the sun, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that they don't want you to see. Right. They don't if report do... that stuff because they don't want panic. Because there's nothing any of us can do about it. You know, well, they, they, they made the mistake of, of building our whole communication network, our whole electrical grid, all vulnerable to these phenomena, and they don't want to sit there and let the, the public know just how vulnerable we are. You're right, and that well, is the whole a, reason for the quiet. It's also a for fact. the mm-hmm. deafening quiet. The odds, well, the conditions for this to happen are are pretty are well known, and. Rather unlikely, not impossible, but odds are the flare won't be facing Earth. But when it does, it's quaintance for the mass communication system. You know, basically, we've already had that happen. It happens all the time. And when you interact with people through internet connectivity, such as Skype, then you become very aware of it. It's something that when we have flares, you can just bank on you're going to have issues with your connectivity and it can affect shows i've been doing this for over well for five years and every it doesn't matter who the producer is it doesn't matter which network it's been it happens quite often and it does affect electronic communication so it is something that people are dealing with on a daily basis well and it makes it interesting Makes doing my job interesting sometimes. We went past uh, the, the point where we can all give our contact info and stuff. Yeah. But we want to thank uh, our esteemed panel for being so wonderful. Thank you all. Um, Gene Breda and Kat Hobson and Chuck Kennedy. Thank you for coming on and uh sharing your articles and being part of this yes thank you thank you for letting me be part of it this has been really great and i'm so glad that chat people weighed in this is awesome thanks everybody
And thank you to Walter Brooks in chat. And everybody in chat. Yeah, everyone in chat. Sudan and, and Mom and Richard. So, uh, yeah, so we are off next week as Kat goes to cover the UFO Congress. We'll be back in two weeks with another Paralogian report. Kat can fill us in on her adventures out in Phoenix. Uh, feel free to support any of the networks mentioned here tonight, as well as the Northern Wisconsin Paranormal Society Limited. 501c3 nonprofit organization by donating. It's folks like you who ensure that these excellent organizations will be here tomorrow. To the believer, the evidence is overwhelming. And to the skeptic, there will never be enough. Thank you. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening. And we'll see you here next time. Good night, everyone. God bless. You are listening to WPHM Digital Broadcasting. The best in paranormal talk radio.